Hey everyone, and welcome to ARE Live. I'm Chris Hopstock, Architect Education Specialist here at Black Spectacles and your host for ARE Live. Today, we're going to be joined by our guest expert and longtime Black Spectacles collaborator, Darian Ziegler, who is going to walk us through a PJM case study. She'll share case study tips that are applicable to all divisions of the ARE, and we'll go over questions about developing a fee for a project, zoning requirements, and contracts. We'll also answer all of your burning PJM-related case study questions with a live Q&A session at the end of the episode. If you think of any questions you'd like to ask Darian in the Q&A, make sure to post them in our ARE community, as the webinar chat feature won't be available today. Go to community.blackspectacles.com and post your questions or comments on the PJM case study episode page. Everyone who posts in our ARE community thread today will be entered to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt, so head over and just say hello. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to see if you won. Join us on January 19th, 2023 for our next ARE Live, where we'll work through one question from each division of the ARE, tying them all together with test-taking tips and strategies. We'll discuss the overlap amongst the divisions, how to prepare for each one, and offer test-taking tips that will help you no matter which division you have scheduled next. You can go to go.blackspectacles.com forward slash podcast to sign up, or check out the PJM case study page in the ARE community. To learn more about the study materials Black Spectacles offers or to watch this episode again later, go to go.blackspectacles.com. Although all of our episodes are available in both video and podcast audio formats after the airing, we'll be sharing Darian's screen today uh, during the live, so we recommend watching the webinar to better see how she works through these questions. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's guest, Darian Ziegler. Uh, in addition to being a longtime collaborator with Black Spectacles, Darian has been practicing architecture since obtaining her license in 2019. She's registered in the state of Ohio, where she's an architect for ResTark Design Studio. So welcome, Darian. And take it away by uh, giving us an overview of this case study, and then we'll jump right into the first question uh, out of the seven that we have here. Sounds like a plan. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. Uh, so let's get right down to the nitty gritty. Uh, today, we're looking at a case study on the project management exam. Uh, so as I go through this, I'm going to be sort of giving you some tips of how I might read through this, how I might approach the questions, uh, as well as how, how you would answer these. I know you guys all got the questions in advance and were able to go through them on your own. So hopefully if you did that, you can have that pulled open and be checking what you got versus what we're discussing now as we go through. So our case study, the scenario, ABC Architects plans to submit a proposal to design a pavilion for the Public Works Department of Aurora, Colorado. If Aurora Public Works accepts the proposal, the team is considering using the AIA B101 2017 argument. The following is known about the project site. Uh, it's part of a larger mixed-use development in a mixed-use regional MUR zone. The site's located between E470 and a boundary road. The site was previously used for agricultural uses. There's numerous single-family residential developments surrounding the area. City plans develop adjacent sites in the future. And we have some resources. Uh, the way I'm reading this out right now is the exact same way I would be approaching this on the exam. Uh, some people like to read the questions first. That's fine. But because in these case studies, 
the uh, scenario here relates to multiple questions, uh, not just this one that's down below. I usually just start by reading over the, the whole thing as much as I can uh, while recognizing the time. Uh, the following resources are available for your use. ABC Architects Proposed Work Plan, the ABC Architects Proposal, Zoning Excerpt on Exterior Lighting, the Zoning Excerpt on MUR District, AIA B101, that's great, Aurora Zoning Map, and the aerial view of the site. So let's detach from the case studies real quick here to go over some general test taking tips. Um, the way I personally approach the exams is I would do the multiple choice first, uh, take no breaks, so I always have access to all of those questions. Uh, it's up to you how you want to do it. Uh, just make sure that you are aware that with Black Spectre, or with uh, NCARB's new break policy, which they implemented when they uh, moved to an online proctoring option, once you take a break, you will no longer have access to questions that you opened previously before your break. Um, so if you want to have access to some of these really great references you might have in your case studies, like the B101, then you want to make sure that you're leaving either one of these questions unseen or you are just avoiding your break. Um, so uh, my personal test taking strategy always started out with doing the multiple choice questions. And what I would do when I was going through these questions, if there was one I didn't know, but I thought I might be able to figure out if I had a specific reference document, I would write it down on one of my whiteboard pages and then just a short description of it. So let's say this question was about um, methods of compensation for the architect. Uh, and I didn't know the question answer off the top of my head, but I thought I could find it if I had the B101, because I do know that methods of compensation for the architect are covered in that B101. And by the end of the uh, multiple choice sections, I would have a whole list of questions uh, that I thought I might be able to find the answer to in a contract. And I would then, if I had time, uh, go back through to these questions at the end of the exam during my exam summary. So that's just a great tip um, how you can best strategize and utilize some of these extra documents they throw in here to your advantage. Okay, so when I'm looking at these case studies, my next step is probably not to read through every single reference document they provide completely, but to at least pull them open, scroll through them briefly, just so I have an idea of what can, is contained in each. So we've got a work plan, uh, Excel file kind of format looks great. We've got a proposal. You can see it's broken out by the different project phases. And we can see the total fee down here as well. We can see the zoning excerpt on lighting. That's great. We can see this excerpt on um, mixed use regional districts, which seems to be really specific to the city and the prompt. Aurora Unified Development Ordinate. Got some pictures in here. Always good to know. B101. Uh, hopefully you're super familiar with this document by now. When you are studying for the project management exam, I always recommend that people spend a lot of time focusing on what I like to call the big three contracts. That's your B101, your A101, and your A201. Next item is a zoning map. We can see it is calling out the site. 
And then we also have an aerial view of the site. So it looks like we can kind of compare these two documents to know on our aerial view that this portion right about here is where our site's going to be. Okay, so that was a lot of thinking we just did. But now that we feel generally familiar with the scenario and the documents provided, we've got to dig into these questions. Um, real quick, one more test taking strategy. Uh, the project management exam, if you calculate the total time for your test uh, divided by the number of total questions, it ends up being just around, I think a little bit higher than two and a half minutes per question. Some of these questions you're going to answer in a lot less than two and a half minutes, hopefully. And almost certainly there's going to be some that take longer than that two and a half minutes. The way I personally did this when I was testing is I would reserve a total of at least one hour just to do the case studies. Um, so obviously there, uh, that gives these questions more than two and a half minutes on average. And it gives the multiple choice sections prior to the case studies um, a little bit less than that two and a half minutes average. So keep that in mind as you're going through the exams, make sure you're staying aware of your time and setting goalposts to reach as you go through. Okay, so first question here. ABC Architects project managers typically perform all of the firm's duties during the contract administration phase. How many hours could the project manager spend per week on contract administration without exceeding the proposed fee? Round your answer to the nearest half hour. Okay, so that's important. Maybe we wanna highlight the rounding instructions. I'm the kind of person who sometimes glosses over details. So that highlight tool, really important for me when I'm taking the exam. Okay, so we're specifically looking at the project manager during the CA phase without exceeding the proposed fee. All right, so let's look at our reference documents and try to decide which one of these might have the information. And I think there's a couple ways we could do this. We could start by going to our work plan and seeing where the CA phase is here, seeing if we have the total amount of the CA phase. And it looks like our work plan actually lists procurement as TBD uh, and it doesn't seem like we have the fee down here. All right, maybe we go on to our next item, which would be our proposal. So we noticed when we did our quick review that the proposal listed everything out by phase. Uh, so let's go down to the construction phase services listed here. Uh, that's our construction administration services. And Let's see if we can find any sort of time associated with this because we need to know how long our CA phase is to figure out how many hours per week we can spend on it. Review shop drawings, not that. Item two, issue appropriate clarifications, not that. Provide telephone coordination, not that. Uh, potential change orders, nope, 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 nope. And as we go through, we can see right here at the end, for construction, ABC architects and their consultants can provide field observation trips followed by written observation reports. For the purposes of this proposal, the estimated construction period from start of the project to complete build out is approximately four months. All right, four months, now we have our 
time frame for CA. So on my whiteboard over here, I made a new tab. That's how I like to organize it. If you want to put your uh, text over here in page one, that's fine. I like to keep a separate tab and I like to head it with our question number here. This is question one. We'll just make that its own little text box up there and we'll write a note. Four months for CA, four weeks per month equals 16 weeks total for CA. Perfect. All right. Now, as far as the fee for CA, this is how much money we have to spend doing it. And we can see right here that our CA fee is $6,000 hourly not to exceed. Okay, so we have $6,000 that we can spend just on the CA phase. And let's go back to our question, see what other information we need. How many hours could the PM spend per week? So now we need to know how much money the PM is billing out per week. Uh, a little bit earlier, we looked at our work plan. And so I noticed then that we can see the PM's billable rate right here, $140 per week, or sorry, per hour rather. Um, so we can go to our select object tool and our whiteboard, $6,000 divided by the $140 per hour that the PM makes, pull open our calculator and calculate that out to get 42.857. So let's make a note of that on our whiteboard. All right, so, and that's in hours, not money. So. RPM has 42.86 total hours that they can spend working on CA. And we have 16 weeks in which the PM anticipates spending them. So let's take our 42.86 and divide that by 16 weeks to equal the average hours per week. Whoa, type something wrong in there, that's fine. We'll just retype it. All right, so we get 2.67 hours per week. Beautiful. So on average, our project manager can spend 2.6 hours per week working on the contract administration without blowing the proposed fee. Uh, now you might be tempted, it took a while to find that answer, just to type it in here right like that, 2.67. But remember, when we were reading this the first time, we highlighted round to the nearest half hour. Nearest half hour, 2.67 rounds down to two hours per week. Uh, a lot of people get really concerned about the rounding on the exam, rightfully so. It, it can be tricky. Um, it's a little bit easier in some ways during the project management as well as the practice management exams uh, because a lot of those prompts will tell you how to round it. It'll say round to the nearest half or round to the nearest whole, uh, giving you a little bit of instructions. Uh, once you get to PPD and PDD, it gets a little bit more difficult because you're expected to know how you need to round to meet code. Uh, for example, how you you can't uh, have if you're calculating occupancy you can't have a partial person you always have to round up you can't round down 
But here, we're instructed just to round to the nearest half hour, easy peasy. Perfect. So let's go ahead and move on to our next question. Just before you jump to the next one, Darian, I just wanted to, yeah. to interject with a couple of thoughts that I had. Oh, oh. Um, 2.5. 2.5, right. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't do all that work and then not get not uh, remember the decimal. Um, Thank you. Yeah, this this question, um, it's 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 asking you to convert the four months to into weeks to answer the question. And I think some people could have a tendency to overthink that because obviously there's seven days in a week and a month is 30 days or 31 days. So you're wondering like, is it 4.3 or 4.4 or something? Don't don't go down that train of thought. It's a, a you know a month is four weeks and and that's it for the sake of um, these types of questions. Um, the other thing I'll I'll say about this one is I think this question could have been a little bit more complicated in that maybe the hourly rate was provided and not the billable rate, you know, just just everybody's salary. And then if a net multiplier was provided, you might have to do some some math. Um, alternatively, the billable rate could have been provided just like it was here, and a little distractor might have been put in the scenario of the net multiplier. And that could make you wonder, do I need to multiply this 140 by 3.1 or something? Um, so I guess I'm saying all that just to say that there are distractors. Uh, we actually have a few in the scenario. You know that information about being surrounded by residential projects is is going to turn out to be erroneous information. Um, but get comfortable with some of these financial metrics and and how you use a work plan so that if you do get a distractor, that's the net multiplier. You're you're not questioning yourself if you should be applying that to the billable rates. Yeah, uh, great point, Chris. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I spent a long time instructing the project management workshops, and, and one of the things I always tell candidates is the, the worst thing you can do is get really hung up thinking about rounding and spending a lot of time uh, maybe contemplating it or redoing it with different rounding. Uh, this is a, a timed game, so you, you have to sometimes move on even though you have concerns. You have to put those aside um, and, and just move forward. Um, the worst thing you can do is let it eat at, at you and at your time as you're taking the exam. So that's a really good point. Thank you so much. Yeah, let's uh, let's hit the next one. Sounds like a plan to me. Okay, question number two. Aurora Public Works is considering developing a recreational facility on a site adjacent to the pavilion. Which of the following project delivery methods should the architect suggest? Check the, check the two that apply. Uh, Anytime I encounter one of these check all that apply questions, I make sure to highlight the number I'm supposed to check. Uh, two, I am checking two. One of the other big strategies I use once I, I see one of these check all that apply is a process of elimination. Uh, even if I think I know the answer, I go back through and I cross out ones I know are incorrect first. Um, and even if you don't know the answer, uh, crossing out the incorrect options will get you that much closer to maybe getting it correct. Um, if we are looking at a simple multiple choice question with four options, if you guess randomly, you have a 25% chance of getting it correct, one in four. Uh, if you can cross out one option, then you have a 33% chance. Uh, if you can cross out maybe two options and just select between two options, then you have a 50% chance of getting it right and you're that much closer. There are no deductions for incorrect guesses. Okay, so this question in particular, 
uh, in reading through this, one of the other really important words is Aurora Public Works. It is a public project, uh, which means there's going to be some special requirements for this project. It will have to go through a public bid and you have to choose the lowest bidder. Uh, that's one of the things that uh, we know about public works projects. So let's maybe first go through all these options and see if we can use that information to start crossing off some we know are not going to be our correct answers. Uh, negotiated select teams. Let's start there. So this is also called design, negotiate, build. And in this process, the contractor is brought on early. Um, while the building is still in design, they might be brought on through an RFP process similar to how the architect is, or maybe the owner just has a contractor they really enjoy working with. Um, and after the design is finished, the CD documents are produced, that contractor is given those documents and they then uh, negotiate the price of construction with the owner. There is no public bid. So this is one that we can go ahead and strike out right now. Integrated project delivery. Uh, the ARE loves to throw some questions about integrated project delivery into the ARES. Um, don't let it scare you. It's just another project delivery. Uh, it's similar to negotiated teams. Integrated project delivery has the contractor brought on early. Uh, in this project delivery method, all parties, including the architect, owner, and contractor, share to various degrees the risks and rewards of construction. So again, we're not in a bid type situation. It's not a public bid. We can go ahead and strike it out. Construction manager as advisor. Now this one is interesting because technically you can have a construction manager as advisor uh, in any different project delivery method. You could have a design bid build project with a CM as advisor. Uh, you could also have a design build project with a CM as advisor if you really wanted to, I suppose. It's a little bit special. Uh, so maybe we're not sure about this one and we leave it there and we'll go on to our next options. Design build. Hmm. There is no public bid in a design build project. Instead, the design build team is preparing a proposal, which the owner then reviews and can choose to accept, or maybe they want to go and do something else. But it does not have the public bid that you need in a public works project. So we can cross that one out as well. Design bid build. I think this is maybe one we can highlight as being correct. We know it has a public bid, it's in the name. And also, uh, if we're going back to our uh, scenario here, we can see that the scope that ABC Architects is currently making a proposal for is going out to a bid. It's using the AIAB 101, uh, which is used for design uh, DBB project delivery. So maybe we can go ahead and check that as correct. And last but not least, we have construction manager as constructor. This is kind of sim uh, similar to negotiated select teams as well as integrated project delivery in that the uh, constructor is brought on really early. Oftentimes they are even producing a GMP, guaranteed maximum price, before the design is complete. But the owner is only working with that one GC. So, 
I don't think this one is going to quite match our scenario either. All right, so we've gone through all of them and we need to select two and there's only one left. So I think right now we're safe to go ahead and click this. We've used the process of elimination to, to get to the spot where we are comfortable maybe checking that answer on construction manager as advisor. Yeah, I think there's a there's a couple of interesting things about this one in that, um, firstly, it doesn't use any of the resources provided other than really the scenario. And that could be a little um, confusing to you as you're taking the exam. You might be tempted when you see this question to poke through all of those resources again and try to find some information about this. I think that's one of the reasons why it's really important to review those resources before you get into this. Um, if you can sort of remember that there was nothing in there about this future project, there was nothing in any of these resources about delivery methods really um, other than the B101, you, you can sort of get comfortable and not waste that time going through them again. The, the other thing about this one is that um, Design bid build is kind of a gimme. Like it's it's if you're familiar with the B101 and you know that the fact that they're using that contract means that they're using design bid build, you you kind of know that that's correct immediately. So then you're just choosing one out of these five last choices, and you're kind of playing like which one of these is not like the other. And construction manager advisor is definitely not like the others for all the reasons that Darian stated. So. That's that's just kind of uh, one other way that you could go about doing this question, this type of a question. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and one thing I always like to to tell people during the workshops is that negotiated select teams is a little special. Uh, this is a little bit of a side. This does not relate directly to this question, but something I think everyone should know, and they maybe don't. Negotiated select teams or design negotiate build actually uses the same contract as design bid build. It's the the B one hundred one. Uh, and this ties into something that's uh, written in Article 3, which is the basic services that the architect provides. It's divided out by phase. And once you get to procurement phases, uh, it actually lists two different options. One's competitive bidding and one's negotiated proposals. Uh, so these are the phases you do if the contractor is already brought on through a negotiated select teams process. Uh, it's the negotiated proposals, list of tasks. Or if you're doing a competitive bid, like in design bid build, then you're looking at performing these tasks. Um, so a little bit of an aside, but something I think everyone should know and, and doesn't always get brought up or something you might not notice when you're studying. Okay, but staying on topic, uh, are we ready to move on to question three, Chris? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Question number three. After being awarded the project, the lead designer is considering which direction to face the pavilion, which direction is appropriate. Okay, so do you want to note here, uh, questions in the ARE never build upon each other. So this previous question was talking about developing a, a recreational facility and a site adjacent to the pavilion, kind of going off this little scenario here a little bit. The next question, because we got so deep into thinking about question number two, we might be tempted to think about that recreational facility. But remember, questions don't build on each other. They're always distinct. We are back to the prompt, looking at which direction to face the pavilion. Uh, mentioned in the case study in the written scenario. So maybe we want to highlight that. Which direction is appropriate? All the normal ones listed out, west, south, east, and north. Okay, so 
clearly they're not asking for a judgment call on which direction you like the best. Uh, this is one we're going to have to go back into our resource documents to, to see uh, what maybe is controlling the direction we need to face it. Um, do, do, do. Reviewing our scenario again, we can see that we have a couple of zoning excerpts, one on MUR district. That one might be good. Uh, zoning can control which direction your building needs to face in some instances. Uh, we'll definitely need to look at that zoning map and the view of the site. Maybe there's a reason why it couldn't be one direction or another. And let's see what else we got here. The site is located between E470 and a boundary road, previously used for agricultural uses. These are a couple of notes which could affect how you might orient your pavilion. So maybe we want to highlight those. We might need them, we might not. And let's go ahead and start by reviewing our site again. We did it briefly when we opened this case study, but probably want to refresh ourselves. So here we are in that MU-R district we discussed earlier. Um, let's see, you can kind of see the roads on the zoning map, but it's a little bit hard to understand. Maybe we want to pull up in the aerial view. Ooh, okay, the aerial view does have the road names on it. So here is Colorado E470. That road's been mentioned a few times. Uh, it was mentioned in the scenario, and I can see that it's on uh, on this um, on this aerial view. Maybe that is important. We've also got Jewel Avenue, and we've got 30. All right, so this gives us some information to go on. When we're going to look in the zoning document, maybe we kind of want to start to look at E470. That seems like it might be a controlling factor here, just based on the number of times it's been mentioned. So we have our zoning document. And let's start looking at this, a purpose. Maybe we want to go ahead and type in E470 just to see if it pulls up any good information. Maybe we want to just search 470. There we go, it has a dash in it. Uh, this is something that's really important when you're searching things. Uh, make sure you aren't including punctuation, no commas, that sort of thing. Uh, it can sometimes uh, affect your search and that word might be in there, but it's just not picking it up because the search is uh, including that comma. Uh, so myself, I just searched E470 and didn't find anything. I know it's a little bit small if you can see it. Uh, and so I decided to just pull off that E and then I realized they were putting a hyphen in between the E and the E470. So that could have really thrown me off, but luckily I kept trying the search and did find something that worked. Okay, so what are we talking about here? For required elements, each development in the MUR shall have the following elements. That doesn't sound right. We're talking about how we want to cite things. But wow, this portion right here really lists E470 many, many times. Okay, if the property is adjacent to E470, it shall include identified high visibility sites defined along a single row. Building sites located between the E470 right away and a boundary road that generally parallels the alignment of E470. 
It also turns parallel to the alignment of I-70 at the E-470, I-70 interchange and terminates other streets running towards E-470. Hmm. The boundary road shall be located at least 300 feet from the E-470 right-of-way to define a single row of buildings. Seems like we're getting close, but this isn't quite here yet. But this does look like our scenario. So we have our E-470 here, and then we have our 30 that runs parallel to this highway, E-470. So maybe this is considered a boundary street. Hmm, okay, great. Now, let's see what else we have here. Just reading through our headers now, street network and pedestrian circulation, pedestrian circulation, specific sites, walkable main streets, highly visible sites, sites adjacent to the 470 right-of-way, that might be us, architectural features, location of certain land uses, outdoor common area. That definitely sounds like us because we have this pavilion. Okay, now we're talking about the outdoor space requirement, public spaces dedicated to the city, on-site parking, building height, massing setbacks, and build two lines. I think we're getting close now. Building orientation. Ah, that would be us. Let's see, can I highlight this? I know the rules for highlighting in documents varies. Okay, so high visibility sites. Buildings shall be oriented so that major primary pedestrian entries face the boundary street, but the facade facing E470 shall be finished with the same mix of materials and same colors and the same degree of fenestrations and articulation used on the major entry walls facing the boundary street. Okay, so that would mean if we are considering this a boundary street, that our building, uh, in this case the pavilion, should face that boundary street, which would be facing east. Perfect. Let's read through the rest of the zoning just in case. Focal point sites oriented to the primary pedestrian entries faces the walkable main street, but any facade facing arterial or collector street shall be finished with the same mix. Okay, and walkable main street sites buildings adjacent to walkable main street shall be oriented to the primary pedestrian entries faces the street. All right, so I'm not quite sure if anything here would be considered a walkable main street. They seem a bit urban for that. Uh, we know it shouldn't be facing the highway. None of the scenarios we just read through have it facing the highway. I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that if we are considering this a boundary street, our building should be oriented facing it towards the east. So let's go down here and click our East option. Perfect. I really appreciate how you uh, how you went through that zoning document, Darian. That was that was uh, sort of a great tutorial on how to do that. I think you could easily sp spend um, you know five percent of your exam time really reading through that whole thing, and that would that would be kind of a waste of time to answer a question like this, and it would just take away from your time for other questions. So. Um, you know, I, you, you skipped over the purpose section. That's that's definitely something you can do. You know, the purpose section of a zoning ordinance, you have to remember that a zoning <laughs> ordinance 
is a, it's a law that a municipality is passing. So they generally include a purpose uh, section, just kind of saying why they're passing it. If you're curious, it's not really going to contain any information that's going to be applicable to the architecture of, of what they're describing. So skipping over that and then using the headers to decide what else to skip over was, was super useful. Um, I think also sort of at the end there, you, you, you picked a horse and you ran with it, so to speak. Like I, I think <laughs> the most sense and we just went with that I, I i i'm pretty confident in east i think if you have extra time at the end and you really want to scour this document and make sure it's not a different direction you could certainly do that but uh you've you've always got to be cognizant of how much time you're spending on each question and if you've you've got a pretty good hunch that it's east maybe uh just pick that answer mark it for later and if you if you have some extra time you can look at it again Absolutely. Uh, and that's a great point. One thing we haven't talked about right now is the mark for review tool. Uh, this is something I relied on heavily when I was testing. Even if I had, uh, you know, just a little bit of doubts, it doesn't hurt to flag it. And then if you do have extra time, you can go back. Uh, again, maybe this is something that you're pulling open your whiteboard for and you had some doubts on this question. So we're on question three. Maybe we just say zoning question faces, which way zoning document. That way, you know, you know, maybe I'm flagging this because I didn't have all the time I necessarily wanted to, to read through the zoning document, or I didn't think that reading through all of it the way I maybe felt like I should would, would result in a net win for the, the risk of spending time on it versus getting the correct answer. Um, you can use your whiteboard to your advantage as much as you can. Uh, try to keep as many notes as you can in there that you think might help you out if you have that spare time to go back and check things. Okay, so let's head on to question number four. Question number four. When reviewing the proposal with the project manager, the principal notes that each employee's hourly billable rate is being increased by 7% on 1-1-23. The firm also has a policy of rounding hourly rates to the nearest $5. The principal asked the project manager to revise the proposed fee to align with the adjusted hourly billable rates. What should the revised total fee be, not including reimbursable expenses, round to the nearest dollar? Whew, okay. So, there's some things in here we can highlight already. Uh, we've got some rounding instructions. Always want to highlight those nearest dollar grades, hourly rates to the nearest five dollars. Highlight that guy. And we're looking for the revised fee, not including reimbursable expenses. I'll probably highlight that too, just so I remember not to add it in there. And the hourly bill rates are being increased by 7% at the first of the year. So in real life, updating the hourly billable rates table is something that typically handle, happens maybe annually or biannually, um, just to, to keep up with the pace of inflation. Every so often, the table of billable rates is updated. Um, from a professional standpoint, when you are making a proposal, one of the things you likely start with is uh, sort of an average billable rate for your firm, or maybe you are looking at the individual staff members, you might need to make a project happen and successful, and maybe you start to plug in their, their billable rates, and you start to assign how many hours you think it's going to take to do something and you multiply those hours by the rates as needed to start to come up with this idea of a fee. That's really how bottom-up uh, 
uh, budgeting works. If you're looking at top-down, then you're looking at maybe a factor such as um, a number per square foot of building that you're designing and multiplying that out to, to get sort of a fee that's in line with industry standards. Um, but then double checking that with your bottom up budgeting to make sure you have enough fee to, to actually complete the project. So our proposal lists our total fee. Um, and let's go right there to look at that towards the end. And our total fee is $49,173 lump sum. Okay, we know from our first peruse of the working documents that we have a work plan. Um, and because the total fee is listed here, we know that we need to go back and increase the employee's hourly billable rates. Earlier in the project, we reviewed the project manager's billable rate on that work plan. Uh, we know we need to go back to our work plan to calculate this uh, question out. Okay, so billable rates in our chart listed right here next to the appropriate roles. These are the rates that we will need to increase by 7%. And going back to the question, 7% on 1-1-2023. Let's look at our dates associated with this project. So we can see that the begin date is November 27th, 2022. DD ends December, the owner review starts in December, and then it completes after the first of the year, as does the CD documents. Looking at this chart, we can see it looks like there's hours assigned for each week of this schedule. That's how they've created this work plan. Um, you can see a lot of different ways people do work plans. Sometimes they do them out by month, some people do them bi-weekly. This one looks like it's done weekly and the week is listed at the top here. Um, let's see, how do we know if these dates are sort of the start of the week, the Monday or the end of the week, the Friday? Uh, let's check our first one, it's 1127, which is listed as the begin date here, as well as right up here. Uh, in sort of the introduction of this. So we know this is the start of the week. That makes it a lot easier because we can see right here week six starts on 1-1. One, one. So any hour spent after uh, at or after this column need to be increased by that 7% to, to figure out what our, our fee should really be on this proposal, uh, incorporating the increase set to take place on 1-1. One, one. Whew, this question is a doozy. Okay, so I think the way I am going to start tackling this is by pulling open my whiteboard. I'm gonna start a new page. I'm gonna go ahead and label it. We're on question four, right? Yes, we are. I'm gonna go ahead and label it question four. Okay. I am going to list the different roles on this project and their billable rates. So we have, oh goodness, I have a habit of pushing tab, uh, which does not tab in the whiteboard. Okay, so we have the principal and he is making $240 an hour. We have the PM, project manager, and he is making 
140 an hour. We have the lead designer, let's just call them LD, save us some time typing. They are making $175 an hour. Our designer is making $95 an hour. And our QA QC principal is making $240 an hour. Um, okay, so let's start by figuring out what their new rates are going to be after the first of the year. So to do that, we're going to multiply each by 1.07 equals, and I'm going to use the copy-paste tool. Don't be afraid of your hot keys. Control V, Control C. Okay, pulling open my calculator. So let's start with 240 times 1.07 equals 256.8. 256.8. And that's going to be the same for the principal at the top of our chart here, as well as the QA QC principal. 256.8. All right, let's go on to the PM, 140 times 1.07, and that one equals 149.8. We'll do the same for the lead designer. And we get 187.25. Ninety-five times seven percent as well for the increased fee of the normal designer, not the lead designer. Okay, so these are the raw numbers uh, at this point because we highlighted it. We remember that the firm has a policy of rounding their hourly rates to the nearest five dollars. So our principal is going to be two hundred fifty-five dollars. Our PM is going to be $150 per hour, or project manager rather. Our lead designer is going to be $185 an hour. Our normal designer is going to be $100 an hour. And our QA QC principal, similar to the principal's fee at the top will be 255. Perfect. Okay, now that we have the rates that they will be billing at, I'm going to copy all of this text. I'm going to make a new text box, and then I'm going to paste it all again right here. Okay. So I'm going to use this text box right here to evaluate how much they're charging pre-increase. Maybe I'm even going to bold this if I have time. If you don't, it's cool too. Um, so pre-increase, we are taking the original billing rates. And post-increase, we will calculate down here.
And to do that, we will multiply the new billing rates by the hours they work. So we'll erase this real quick, and then we'll be able to start actually calculating out how much we anticipate these employees are going to be billing per each phase. Okay, so let's start looking at how much we anticipate our principal is going to bill pre-increase. So that's before this column six. We're going to try to keep an eye on that. So week one, they're billing a half hour. Week two, half hour. Week three, half hour. Week four, half hour. Week five, another half hour. So that's one, two, 2.5 hours pre-increase. So we're going to go ahead and type that in there. And we could go ahead and calculate this out, but I'm kind of in the in the zone when it comes to counting these hours. Let's keep doing that. All right. So post increase, they're working 0 0.5, 1, 1.5, 2, 2.5, 3 hours. Okay, so let's go ahead, go down here. And we will edit this text to multiply it by three. Beautiful. All right, let's start counting the hours for our PM. So our PM does 24, 48, 72, 73, 74 hours, and that is pre-increase. 74 hours pre-increase. And um, just so you know, if I was actually taking the exam, I probably would have used my calculator to multiply 24 by three, uh, just to, to make sure I was getting the hours correct there. Uh, but I don't think you guys wanna watch me type out that many things. So I'm doing some of this math in my head that I might otherwise be double checking with my calculator just to avoid me miss, uh, miss at, miscalculating anything. Sometimes you get a little nervous during the exams and, and you miscalculate things. Okay, so hours worked post increase. We've got three, 23, uh, 23 plus 48. Maybe I do want to grab my calculator for that. So 23 plus 48, 71. And then we have an additional 20 hours. So that's 91 hours post increase. Let's grab our cursor again, times 91. Beautiful. Now we're on to our lead designer. So they only work six hours. Perfect. That's easy to type. Six hours. And post increase after that one one date, they're working another six hours. So let's go ahead and type that. And you can see I'm not bothering to delete these texts it makes when I accidentally triple click instead of double click. I'm just moving those to the side. It's your workspace. It can be as messy as you want. Designer is working 48 hours pre-increase. Let's type that in. 
and they are working 20, 40, 68 hours post increase. So 68. And last but not least, we have our QAQC principal. They're not working at all pre-increased, post-increased. They are working for three hours. Perfect. Now that we've got this written out, we can start calculating it and it should be smoother sailing from there. This question is a doozy. So first taking 240 times 0.25. And now because we have this handy dandy history tool on our calculator, uh, which did not used to be there, maybe we wanna calculate a, full, uh, a few things since we have this all written out and then go back and type them into our whiteboard. Um, so we've calculated out the first one. Now let's do 140 times 74 for our PM pre-increase. Then let's do 175 times 6 for our lead designer pre-increase. And we also have 48 hours at $95 for our normal designer. Not that they aren't also spectacular, I'm sure. Okay, so now that we have those all calculated, let's go back and type them in. $4,560, and that should be an equal sign. For the one before, our lead designer, they are billing a total of $1,050. Our PM is billing a total of $10,360. And last but not least, our principal is billing a total of estimated 600 hours. Great. Now let's go ahead and clear out all of this and calculate our post-increase um, expected billable amounts. Okay, so we have 255 times three for our principal. Our PM is 150 times 91. We have 185 times six for a lead designer. Then we have $100 times 68 for our designer. And our QAQC PM is 255 times three. And let's go ahead and record these values in our whiteboard. So starting at the top, we'll do 765 for our principal, 13650 for our PM, 1110 for our lead designer, 6800 for our designer, and then another $765 for our QAQC PM. Let's go back and calculate all of, um, let's go ahead and add all of this together. That's going to get us our, our new sort of total fee that we are anticipating we'll need to complete this project, including that 7% increase occurring after 1-1. So let's add together our pre-increase totals. 600 plus 10,360 plus 1,050 plus 
4,560. And that gives us a total of $16,570. We don't need that. So let's go ahead and say equals 16570. And let's add up our post increase amounts 765 plus 13650 plus 1110. Ooh, extra zero typed in there. Plus 6800 plus an extra $765 equals 23090 and $90. Now we need to add these two together. So let's take 23090 plus the $6,000 $16,570 pre-increase to get our total amount of 39,000. And let's type that in 23090 plus 16570 equals $39,600. Six hundred and sixty. Perfect. Now you might think, well, that's great. That is what I need to type into the answer. But don't forget, we still have to add in the contingency. Um, this contingency was used to get the total fees that were recorded on our final proposal, this document right here. So we would be really remiss if we weren't including the contingency as well as our consultant fees. Those are all rolled into the total fee listed on our proposal. Um, as you're going through this, one way to start checking yourself is, you know, this fee includes an increase. Uh, the fee we're answering with has to be bigger than this 49,173. So after doing all that work, you might feel a little dazed. You might feel like uh, I should just copy and paste this. But we know we must have a few more steps because we're still not over the amount of that original fee. So we need to take this and we need to multiply it by the contingency. What's our contingency? Our contingency here is 5%. So we'll take this times 1.05, pull out our calculator, clear it a few times. Okay, 39,660 times 1.05. That equals 41, whoop, type in in the wrong box. That equals 41,643 $43. So now we need to add our consultant fees in. starting with our 41,643. And we can see our consultant fees right here. We have one for DD for 4,000, one for CD for 5,000. That total of 9,000, we'll save some time. Start with 9,000 written there. Pull open our calculator, take 41, 
six, four, three, plus nine thousand equals fifty thousand six hundred and forty three dollars. That is a doozy of a question. I'm going to give you a chance to catch your breath for a second. Um, oh, goodness. That was a lot of talking. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I'll say about this is that if you if you see a question like this on the exam that you know is going to take a really long time, I would strongly advise that you leave this until the end. Um, and what that, one of the things you have to do is practice taking the exam and identifying the types of questions that will take you a long time. So definitely do that, and um, you could use our practice exams to do so. But being able to identify that and not start this question, get halfway, and then realize you're taking a long time is, is really important. You, you don't want to do that. But I think one of the reasons you want to save it for last is earlier Darian was mentioning how you have about two and a half minutes per question on the exam, but not all questions are going to take that amount of time. Um, if you kind of answer all of the questions that you can do quickly first, you can sort of, um, in your second pass of the exam, when you're going to answer those questions that are going to take longer, you can recalculate how much time you have on average. It'll it'll make you a little more comfortable than it'll make you not rush. I mean, there there's so many places in this question where you could get something wrong. I mean, even that last step, if you just saw consultant fee one and you only added $4,000 and not the second 5,000, you would have done all that work and gotten this question wrong by $5,000. So save it till the end. Um, the other thing, a uh, quick thing that I just wanted to mention is Darian multiplied by 1.07 and 1.05 to add those percentages. And that's a really important thing that I think everybody should get comfortable with. Um, the alternate way of doing it is multiplying by 0.05 and then adding that answer to the original number. That's just an extra step um, and on a timed exam. I think uh, every second you can get back is, is uh, worthwhile. All right, three more questions. We're at an hour already, but let's uh, keep going. Sounds like a plan to me. Just uh, don't make me do too much more math, please. Thanks, Chris. Okay, great. So this next question looks like it's not math. Fantastic. After being awarded the project, the project manager is considering specifying the below light fixture for an open air for the open areas of the project. After consulting with the electrical engineer, they advised that a 45 watt fixture would be adequate. Click on the portion of the cut sheet that is not appropriate for the project. Okay, not. Always highlight modifiers. So I'm going to highlight not right away. This seems like it might be important. They advised that a 45 watt fixture would be adequate. Why would they tell us that in such a short question if we didn't need it? I mean, they, they do definitely throw some things in here to misdirect you. Um, I was talking to Chris earlier today about red herrings um, and I, I was throwing out the word red herring and then thinking, you know, maybe not everyone was in that specific middle school class I was when they talked about what a red herring was. Uh, so for those of you who might not know, red herring is something that misleads or distracts from a relevant or important question um, it's just something that that's not meant to lead you to the answer, but rather distract you into spending more of your time. So let's highlight this for now, but keep in our head, you know, I'm not sure why they've told us this. It could be important. It could not. So right here, we have a cut sheet of a full cutoff wall pack. Going back to our reference documents, I can guess right away that this is going to be covered in the zoning document provided about lighting. Um, okay. So 
as we're going through here, maybe we do want to start with this 45 watt fixture would be adequate. Let's go through it a little bit first, but keep in mind that wattage. Okay, standards applicable to all development. Um, so this is talking about the applicability. We have examples of cutoff fixtures and some photos here. So ours is a full cutoff wall pack. It seems to be compliant. It seems to look like this one right here, actually. Uh, examples of light fixtures that do not meet full cutoff standards. Examples of full cutoff light fixtures. So even just at a really quick glance, we can see that it looks like our light pack is meeting those requirements. Um, okay, let's keep scrolling down to see other items. We're talking about spill off, talking about lighting along the public street, color correct types such as halogen, metal halide, or light emitting diode, LED. Uh, light types of spectral emissions such as lower pressure sodium, mercury vapor lights are prohibited. Pretty sure that is not something we're dealing with right here. Great. So let's scroll back up. Light spillover into adjacent properties shall not exceed 0.1 foot candles measured on abutting properties 10 feet away from the property line, except for adjacent to walkways, driveways, public, private streets. That sounds like something that could apply, but uh, we don't even have really any indication of where this is going or what adjacent properties there are. So this probably doesn't seem what we're talking about. All exterior light fixtures shall generate 80 lumens per watt of energy consumed as shown on the manufacturer's specifications for the fixture. Now this sounds interesting to me because we're talking about watts. We already highlighted watts down here and it references the manufacturer's specifications. We also have a spec sheet, a little cut sheet right here. So this seems like it might be it. Let's go ahead and scroll through real quickly just to see if there's anything else that sparks our interest first. Shielding of lights in the parking area. Well, we've already discussed that because we we have our, our cutoff wall pack. Illuminance, hmm. hours of lighting. Don't think that would be it. Building lighting. This is a wall pack, so it's probably mounted on the building. This could be something that applies. Building mounted lights shall be installed so the light is directed downward. Check. Uh, ours is full cutoff. We're already complying with that. Lights shall not exceed 400 watts of incandescent illuminance or the equivalent. This sounds like it applies as well. Decorative lighting, this is not a decorative light fixture. Perfect. So now we flagged two things. Our light shall not exceed 400 watts of incandescent illuminance or equivalent, and up here a little bit further, they shall generate at least 80 lumens per watt of energy consumed. So looking at here, we're talking about the 45 watt fixture. That is this one right here. And going back down to that, what we can't exceed, we can't exceed 400 watts. Well, we're, we're definitely not. We're looking at 45. That's kind of leading us back up here to that our fixture shall generate at least 80 lumens per watt of energy consumed. So let's actually check how much, uh, how many lumens we're getting for this wattage. 
So if we are looking at the 45 watt, that is 3,500 lumens divided by 45, that is 77.7. And we have to generate at least 80. So I think we are safe to click this portion right here. Um, I'm gonna tell you something similar to the rounding strategies we talked about earlier. Don't get too hung up and worrying if you're clicking in the exact spot down to the millimeter you need to on these. It is important to get as close as you can, but NCARB is um, designated a little box on the sheet that is acceptable to click in. Uh, you definitely don't want to get too close to this portion because that, that wouldn't be correct. But as long as you are close to the portion you think is incorrect, whether you're probably clicking the text or this dot, it should be fine. Worst thing you can do is spend a lot of time worrying about it. Okay. Uh, I slipped, you a, have... a little, uh, slipped a little math into that question there, Darian. Sorry <laughs> about that. But, um, I appreciate how you went through this where you started with the zoning document and then compared everything to the cut sheet. I think the alternate way you could do it would take way more time, which is like if you started by tempered glass lens, non-yellowing, and you tried to figure out if that was compliant and then all of these other things that, um, you know, if, if if you went that way, you would you would just take so much longer. So I would I would definitely recommend starting with the resource that you have and sort of comparing the requirements there to what you have in front of you. I think you'll answer this a lot quicker. Okay, thanks, Chris. Moving right along. Question six of seven: The principal is reviewing the work plan uh, that the PM prepared before the proposal is finalized and sent to the municipality. The principal is specifically interested in understanding how much contingency is planned for the fee. How many total hours could the PM spend on the DD phase of the project without going over the allotted contingency round to the nearest hour? So we're going to highlight round to the nearest hour. We're going to highlight our employee in question, the PM. And we're going to highlight our phase, DD phase. So luckily, we have become very familiar with both our proposal and our work plan at this point. We probably don't need to sort of go through the rigmarole of evaluating what uh, resources we have and clicking through them all again. We can probably go straight to our work plan for this one. We talked about the contingency a couple of questions ago when we were calculating the increase. So we now know that our, our contingency number is calculated right here in our supplemental document. Uh, this is our DD fee summary. Make sure you're looking at DD, not CD. And we can see that our total contingency is $861.50. We can go ahead and type that in right here. Um, I would always say best practice, even if you don't think you're going to need it, is to, when you're doing that calculation, probably write it down on your whiteboard so you can go back and check your work if you have time. Um, so I will do that now. So we have $861.50. And to figure out uh, how many extra hours that PM can work without going over the contingency, we can divide that by the project manager's hourly billable rate. Again, these, uh, these questions don't compound upon one another. We don't need to think about that 7% increase from a few questions ago. We can just type in $140. So dividing 
the amount available by the hourly billable rate of the project manager will give us the hours the project manager can spend. So let's go ahead and type that in, $861.50 divided by $140 per hour equals 6.15 hours. Perfect. Uh, so again, let's remember, we need to check if there are rounding instructions. Here we are rounding to the nearest hour. That rounds down. So our answer would be six hours. That, that one was, was easy. Yeah, that was a nice quick one. Not every math question is going to be um, terribly long. So don't don't uh, don't just see a math question and decide to skip it until the end. You can definitely answer this one pretty quickly. Um, and again, it comes down to not just skipping a type of question or you know seeing seeing math and and not wanting to answer it early um, it comes down to identifying quickly what types of questions are going to take a long time and skipping those questions great so that brings us to our very last question here no math please no math question number seven which of the following clauses found in the proposal differ from the standard AIA B101? Check the three that apply. Okay, so hopefully by the time you're here, you guys are already pretty familiar with the B101. Um, what I always recommend to candidates is you don't need to know every single word and individual term in the B101. That, that's uh, probably impossible. Uh, Something that is really doable is understanding and maybe even having memorized the table of articles for the B101, the A101, and the A201. Even if you don't have it completely memorized, what's really going to help you out here is if you know the individual articles so you know what is in each document and how to get there quickly if you are given it as a reference. Um, so this in particular is talking about which clauses in the proposal differ from the standard B101. Um, let's start by taking a look at our proposal here and seeing if anything brings up a red flag. Uh, I'm going to go through this one a little bit faster than maybe you would because I, I am someone who is really familiar with the B101. Um, you need to recognize you as an individual, how long this is going to take you, and you know maybe this one might be a burden for you if, if you aren't super familiar. Uh, but you've been studying, you know your B101, let's jump right into this proposal and see if we can spot anything off the bat that is different from the, uh, from the B101. Okay, and some of these are referenced down here. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna bounce between this proposal and these elements right here. Uh, I wouldn't put it past NCARB to include something in here that wasn't included in the proposal. Uh, so let's see, first of all, we have some metallics. Those caught my eye immediately. The surrounding landscape, hardscape, and other FF&E is not included in this proposal and will be primarily designed by the owner's civil engineer. Okay. So right away, I think that is matching some of the text in our options, owner hired consultants, civil, geotechnical, and landscape design. Uh, because I am super familiar with the B101, I know right away that this is standard. 
Uh, it is an option uh, listed as a supplemental service in Article 4 of the B101 for the architect to have a civil landscape underneath them. So right away, we know that this is not a difference. We can strike that out. Moving right along. Project program. Let's see, project program, that wouldn't be something that's included in the standard B101. That's something that would be in the filled out version, which we don't have on this question. Proposals based on the following documents, owner provided materials. Do we have any items here about owner provided materials? No, we do not. Okay, great. So we can scroll right past that guy. And now we're into the phases. So we've got design development. Huh. All right. So right away, I know that the B101 starts with uh, Article 3, Scope of the Architect's Basic Services. It's divided out by phase. And it starts with schematic design but our proposal is jumping right into DD. So we can go ahead and highlight or check this guy because we know that it differs from the standard B101. Okay, and let's see what information we have in here. We've got architectural drawings, we have structural drawings. Um, I know by default that structural is included as a part of the architect's basic services. Uh, maybe I actually wanna search this real quick in the B101 to check by typing in structural. And we can see that the structural engineers tagged right here. We can see that the architect's basic services shall include and customary structural, mechanical, and electrical engineering services. Okay, so we know that's not um, not typical of the B101. Structural engineering is provided by the architect. We know that is typical of the B101. We can strike it through. But along that same vein, right here, it says MEP systems will be a separate scope of work by the owner. Uh, maybe we wanna go check our proposal again to see because I don't see MEP drawings in here at all. Did we skip past that? Let's go ahead and type in mechanical. Owner provided materials. Oh, we did scroll past this, but we can see right here that mechanical, electrical, and plumbing systems will be a separate scope. So that is definitely another difference. Click. Now we only have two left. Architect shall or architect will provide site visits as requested, and architect will assist the owner in submitting documents for permit. Uh, that's great because we can scroll right past the CD documents in our proposal and instead start looking at the construction phase service when the architect would be providing site visits or submitting uh, for permit. And I think permit might be in here, but let's really drill in on this construction phase services and see if we can find anything on site visits. As requested by the owner, site, visit the site to determine in general if the work is being performed. Okay, so that matches the written prompt down here. Uh, architect will provide site visits as requested. Cool. Let's go ahead and check our B101 one more time for site visits. Okay, 
evaluations of the work. Oh, wow, this says architects shall visit site at intervals appropriate to the stage of construction uh, or as otherwise required in section 423. So let's go there super quick to see what is written. 423, upon recognizing, oh, 423, architects shall provide construction phase services exceeding limits set forth below. And one of those includes a number of site visits. Okay, so the B101 is really specifying a set number. Our proposal is not. They're just saying as requested. So this is definitely one difference. Um, because I'm familiar with the B101, we know that um, the architect does assist the owner in submitting documents for permits. So we can cross this one out, which leaves with our double check the number three amount that do apply. And I think we are safe to, to move on. Uh, this is question number seven. So, so that's all of our questions for today. Do you have anything else to add, Chris? Um, just on that last one, I we included the B101 as a resource for this case study. I'm, I'm not sure that to answer this type of question that you should rely on having it in front of you. And, and I appreciated Darian sort of going through it and, and knowing the information included in these answers, um, sort of committing it to her memory. I think I think everyone should do that. I, I wouldn't rely on having the document in front of you. Uh, things like uh, the architect's basic services, who hires what consultants, um, you know, how you're how you're going to determine if you need to make a site visit. That's all stuff that you should have internalized about the B101 uh, before you take the project management, practice management, and the and the uh, CE exams. So, again, just don't rely on having that document in front of you. Um, we were going to move on to a QA session, but <laughs> Darian, I think you explained everything 100% perfectly because we've got no questions from our listeners. Uh, and I think that I think that means that everybody's ready for PJM and again that you, you just did a great job explaining this stuff. So I really appreciate that. Um, so I suppose that is it for today. And just a reminder that our next ARI Live will be January 19th, 2023. Join us as we work through one question from each division of the ARE, tying them all together with test-taking tips and strategies. We'll discuss the overlap amongst the divisions, how to prepare for each one, and test-taking tips that will help you no matter which division you have scheduled next. We'll be sending out mock exam links in the, current, in the coming weeks, so you can test your knowledge before going over your answers during the live broadcast. You can go to go.blackspectacles.com forward class forward slash podcast to sign up or check out the PJM case study page in the ARE community. The lucky winner of the Black Spectacles t-shirt is Drew D. So congratulations, Drew. We'll be reaching out via email shortly with more information. Finally, please stick around for a few minutes after the broadcast to take our survey and share any suggestions you have for future episodes of ARE Live. I promise we read every word and we use your feedback to make this podcast as helpful as it can possibly be. Thanks for watching. Thank you.